What does God think of a lukewarm church, a church that's neither hot nor cold? Is that the church of today in 2021? Welcome to Life 66, podcast where we look at God's 66 books of the Bible and learn how to follow that for our life. This is Pastor Greg, and we are in Revelation 3, 14 to 22, the last of the seven churches, uh, letters to the seven churches. And uh, this one maybe is the most uh, well-known, not for good reasons, but for very sobering reasons. Um, it's, it's the story of a lukewarm church, a church that's lost its love, but yet thinks it's something better than it is. Um, so let's go ahead and, and get into this letter today. Let me first read the letter found in Re- Revelation 3, 14 to 22, and then we'll dive in. To the angel of the church at Laodicea write, these are the words, amen. Excuse me, let me start that again. Uh, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now in all of these letters, the background, the personality, the nature of the church really ties into what Jesus is saying to each one of them. The background of Laodicea is that it is just south of Philadelphia, the church that we dealt with last time, and it's known for its hot springs. Uh, it's very close to Hierapolis in Colossae. Colossae, of course, the, the city that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians to, and a really, really large, prosperous city. And the hot springs are interesting because they fed from Hierapolis, and they would be led by aqueduct down to Laodicea, but the problem was is that when the water arrived to Laodicea, they were no longer hot, but they were lukewarm. It was a highly successful commercial and financial center. Uh, the remains of a theater, aqueducts, uh, baths, a gymnasium, a stadium, they still survived to testify to the former luxury of Laodicea. But it was never a militarily defendable city, so its strategic position was always one of compromise. Again, Get the personality of the letter. The church history is uh, this. It was probably found by Epaphras. Uh, Colossians 4 verse 12 speaks to that. Um, Paul uh, addresses a letter to Colossians, but then brings up um, Laodicea uh, as a, uh, a city that he wanted the letter to be circulated to. So Laodicea does appear um, in the scriptures elsewhere, Colossians 4, 12 to 14, 
and then we find that uh, Paul's letter to Timothy was written by Paul from Laodicea, 1 Timothy 6.21. Um, so it was a known church. It was a church that was very uh, um, on the heart of Paul, and he had ministry that was happening there either by him or by uh, his disciples. Um, there's a there's a tradition that Archippus had become the bishop of Laodicea, but because uh, but it may have been his weakness that contributed to a spiritual uh, lukewarm condition. And so Paul instructs that the that Colossae and Laodicea receive their letters, but then they exchange them uh, in rebuttal to um, you know errors and and issues beginning to arise in the church. Now, the economy of the church at Laodicea is also interesting, and it shows up here in the letter. It was a city of merchants, bankers, and gold refiners. Notice in the letter, it says, I wish that you would buy from me gold refined in the fire, pure gold. It's at the junction of roads leading from Ephesus to Smyrna and the handling of, of caravan trade um, all the way to the China Sea was, uh, was very, very common. Um, much wealth flowed through Laodicea. Many of these cities that were prosperous were on these trade routes. Uh, they manufactured textiles. So it was known as a source of considerable revenue, and they were known for this quality of black wool that produced a particular strain of, uh, that from a particular strain of, strain of sheep, um, and, and for the cloth that it was uh, manufactured from. Notice in the letter it says, I wish you would clothe yourselves in white garments, not the dark garments of the black wool that they produced. There was also a famous school of medicine there, especially known for its uh, ointment used to treat uh, eye issues. Again, notice in the letter that Jesus said, I wish you would put ointment on your eyes so that you could see and not be blind. Powerful images speaking to the church where they would know exactly because of their wealth and excesses what Jesus was talking about. The word Laodicea is also connected to the struggle that, that Laodiceans have. Uh, Laodicea is a compound word. Uh, Leo, the people, where we get our word laity, uh, Deceans, rulers. So this, this name, Laodicea, means the rule of or the rule by the people. In other words, that they've ceased to come under God's rule and they've begun to rule the church in their own way. They're self-satisfied. They're self uh, pleasing. They look to serving and entertaining each other in the church more than they are to glorify God. It's a sobering, sobering letter. The title that comes to Jesus that we see in Revelation chapter 1 is he calls himself the Amen. Amen means so be it, or that's true. That's what amen means. It's the final word, that there's no argument. It's true. And in Revelation 1, 6, 7, 18, uh, we see that same illusion. Uh, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Again, we see in Revelation 1, 5, that, that reference back there to Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He is true. He is the amen. And he is the ruler of God's creation, of course, as opposed to the Laodiceans who think that they are the ones who are ruling. The concerns of the, about this church in this letter, uh, that this one and the letter to Sardis are the two letters that there is no condemnation. And in this one, there's a particular disgust that Jesus shows for their behavior. He says, listen, I know your deeds, 
and you can't hide from me. You're neither hot nor you're cold. I wish you were one or the other. Isn't that fascinating? I'd rather you be just honest and reject me rather than say you want to be with me, but you're really not. Better to be honest rather than be hypocritical. Makes me remember Matthew 7, 21 to 23, when Jesus says, some of you come to me and you say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we you know, do all these great things in your name? And Jesus turns to them and says, away from me. I never knew you, you practicers of evil. Fascinating passage that even in Jesus' name, good things can come because it's Jesus' name that has the power, but the hearts of those who were serving that way were dark. They were evil. They were manipulative. They were selfish. It was for selfish gain. What does it mean when Jesus says, because of your just hypocritical life, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth? That's gross. When I get something in my mouth that I hate the taste of it, I just spit it out. I want nothing to do with it. I want it away from me. It doesn't taste good in any way. That's a pretty sad statement that Jesus is making to these people. I'm going to spit you out. You're gross to me. Now, realize, it doesn't mean he hates them. Look further down the letter when he says, I discipline those who I love. I want you to know just how much your behavior sickens me. But listen, I'm calling to you. Come home. Come back. Be with me. But you see, this church is insensitive to their own spiritual need. God is always warning. And he's, he specifically warns the rich. Have you noticed that in Scripture? calls the love of money the root of all evil. And in his parable about the, the thorns or the, 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 um, the planting of the seed, the sower, that he gets to those who the seed grows up quick, but the cares of this world, the deception of money and riches chokes that off. That anytime we start to, to have money, power, prestige, popularity intertwined with the gospel... And with the ministry of the gospel, you can be sure that compromise is not soon going to follow after that, or not too soon. Uh, I'm saying that wrong. It's not far off that compromise will happen. Contrast this with Smyrna, that they were poor. They didn't have much of anything, but God says, oh, no, no, you're rich. You just don't see it the way I see it. And this is the ultimate rebuttal to the affluent contentment and the spiritual complacency that usually results from a a material-oriented or even just a wealthy, comfortable people of God. Spiritual poverty, or, or it leads to spiritual poverty. And God says, I see what you are. You think you're rich, but you're anything but rich. Listen to the words that he uses for them. He says, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. That's intense words to hear from Jesus to the church. So what is he saying? Already referred to the the items that Laodicea was famous for. He said, instead of all your gold that you think you're so rich, you think you're so, you know, influential, I wish you would just buy real gold refined in the fire that I create, the, the riches of spiritual riches. He says, I counsel you, put away the the glossy uh, raiment 
of, of your own hands and the things that you can make, this beautiful black wool. Says instead, the bridegroom wants to clothe you in white, of course, the white of, of righteousness to cover your nakedness. So I counsel you to put salve on your eyes, not the, not the medicine that makes physical eyes see, but the medicine that makes spiritual eyes see. Why is God speaking so harshly to them? Verse 19 says, because I love you. Be earnest and repent. In other words, be honest here. Be aware of your condition. Think. Have your eyes open so that you can really see what's going on. I've traveled the world and I've visited countless, I don't even know how many, countless cathedrals, temples, beautiful, gorgeous monuments to the worship of God. And very few of them are even operable today. I mean, things that stand in Europe that, that make anything in the States look pitiful, but they stand empty. In the States, we have some magnificent churches, large numbers. Does God really care about that? Does God really care about all the glitz and all of the, the name recognition it makes me wonder. It makes me, makes me concerned. As soon as I see a, a minister or a pastor plaster his face or her face and his or her name as if they are the drawing card instead of Jesus, I get nervous for them. I can almost assuredly expect that something something negative is going to happen. Something in their life is going to be revealed. Because anytime we're after our own glory, we always fall. And how many ministers have to fall for us to learn that it's not about the name, it's not about the show, it's not about the, the size of the, of the stage and the amount of uh, professional musicians and the lights and, the, and the, the, the tech and the screens and some of the most beautiful worship services I've ever been a part of were maybe in an African village where the people had nothing, dirt floor, cinder block walls, sheet metal roof, if there was a roof, maybe a single light bulb hanging from the ceiling, but yet true worship and true uh, preaching of the word and true adoration for God was there. I have to think that God is more pleased with that than some of the big shows that, that we seem to want to, to enjoy and crave in this day and time. Notice that Jesus is outside of this church. He's not inside. He says, I stand outside the house of the people, the house of the people that I love. I stand outside and I'm knocking saying, will anybody let me in here? If you'll let me in, I'll come in and dine with you. But I wonder how many are willing to let him in or are we just too complacent with what, what we've got going on inside, what our agenda is, what our ministry is, what our, well, at least it seems like a ministry when really it's just a service to self. There's a poem that's written on an inscription in a cathedral in Lübeck, Germany, it reads this way. You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. 
You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me mighty and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Powerful words. Jesus is standing outside of our door, both the doors of our hearts and the doors of our churches. We have got to make sure that our churches are not poor, blind, wretched, and pitiful, while at all the same time it looks magnificent and glorious and rich and, and popular and technologically astounding. But all the while, Jesus is shaking his head saying, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm, I'm maybe picking on style right now that I know that style isn't necessarily bad. But at the same time, things can get in the way. And when we start to compromise our truth for the things that will attract people, to make people feel comfortable, to make people feel as if they, uh, it's just palatable. The gospel is not meant to be palatable to the world. The gospel is meant to convict the world. Let us never preach a gospel to make people feel that they can uh, just come and, and like Jesus a little bit. The gospel is meant to make them break and bow before the King of Kings. Well, as we wind up these seven letters, let's look once again at this prophetic profile, if we can say that, that as uh, we look back to Ephesus and look at the history of the church, the Ephesus devotion needed devotion, not just doctrine, or rather, it was the Ephesus devotion that was called into question. They'd lost their first love. Smyrna endured persecution. Pergamus uh, needed purification. Thyatira began to have that, uh, followed Pergamus with that mixture and compromise. Sardis, though, was watchful, or they needed watchfulness and diligence. Philadelphia, there's a period of missionary outreach, but this last church, prosperous but compromising. In Ephesus, they neglected priorities. In Smyrna, they had satanic opposition, but they stood strong. In Pergamum, they had spiritual compromise. In Thyatira, pagan practices. In Sardis, it was as if they were dead. But Philadelphia had loyal ambassadorship. But in Laodicea, materialistic apostasy. What can we do today? Jesus is standing outside of our door and knocking. We said, listen, if we repent earnestly, he'll cause us to sit on the throne with him. That's his desire. And we know that the bride of Christ will sit on the throne with him. But the church is not just one generation. The church is church ever since he created it in Acts chapter 2. And I want to be a church that, that is moving with momentum into the coming king, uh, coming kingdom of God and waiting expectantly for the return of Christ and not caught off guard because we're so wrapped up in our own uh, attractional philosophies. Open your heart today. 
He's standing at the door. Those he loves, he rebukes. If you feel rebuked today, receive it and repent. And Jesus will certainly come in. Next time we get into chapter 4. Chapter 4 and 5, we look at the throne room of God. Amazing passages. Look forward to talking to you then. Have a good one. This is Pastor Greg for Life 66. Signing off today. God bless.